Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Christian Sager. So no matter what culture you come from, you've probably heard of the great flood myth, right? Yeah. Yeah, this seems to be a common trope just... No matter what culture you come from, there is some yeah. tale about floods. Yeah, I mean, and I, often they're catastrophic in in nature. Yeah, exactly. They 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 cleanse the earth and re, rebirth everything, right? Yeah. And uh, in my situation, I remember like being a kid, and I think m- my parents maybe or maybe some other relatives gave me like an illustrated version, like a kid's version of the Bible, mm-hmm. and it had like the Noah's Ark story in it. Uh, and now nowadays we have like Darren Aronofsky's Noah movie, which I haven't seen yet. Have you seen? Yeah, that? I have not seen it either. I've um, heard there's like some crazy stuff going on with like uh, monster design and stuff like that. In yeah, that I think they, they somehow uh, worked the Nephilim into the story. Really? And all. So okay. it, it, it sounds interesting. I don't know why I haven't gotten around to seeing it. But it's everywhere. It's yeah. in our pop culture. It's in our religion. It's in our kids books. And that's not just here in America, right? It's uh, in multiple cultures, as we're going to talk about today. Yeah. It, I mean, it is pretty inescapable in Western culture. If, if for no other perp- uh, reason than... Of all the Christian stories and Old Testament stories, and uh, you know, pretty much any stories in the Abrahamic uh, tradition, yeah. like that's the one that that little children connect they with the most. Onto yeah, that. because yeah. it's got animals in it. it, it yeah. It's less a story about people; it's a story about all these cool animals. And if they're more into vehicles, it's got a big, enormous boat, boat yeah. in it. And I was just rain. reading the other day that there's a guy. Have you heard this story? I, you know, we probably should have pulled this for this episode. Are you talking about the museum? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that's been in yeah. Hmm. yeah, this guy who's rebuilding his own version of the Ark, basically. This but is it's in like Kentucky? A, it's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's somewhere in the Midwest, I want to say. But okay. anyway, yeah, there's a guy who's like actually putting plans together to build an Ark's, an Ark museum with actual live animals in it. Oh, okay. Two of, two of every kind? I, I don't think they're going to be able to do yeah. that. And seven of all the clean animals. <laughs> we'll that's a detail that's often overlooked. I, if I remember correctly, I think it's like, you know, the animals that will be there are basically like the kind of animals you'd find in like a petting zoo. Okay. Um, well, he needs, I think, seven of each of those. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, if I remember correctly, you got to have you got to have ones for the like the, the stock and of replenishing. Yeah. you got to have some from sacri- for sacrifice and, of course, to, to eat and process. Well, and you so. certainly go to zoos a lot more than I do. So and and, and petting zoos at that. Right. Mm-hmm. Bastion, uh, Robert's son, is very into animals. Yeah. But but he certainly has been into the the, the Noah's Ark stories. Like he ends up, he he's acquired a couple of books about it. Yeah. And and I remember as a kid, you know, thinking about this story as I read it, looking at these pictures. There are all these wonderful pictures, sometimes horrific pictures of the flooding. Yeah. And you you can't help but wonder, well, how would that work? How how does is it possible that an enormous flood could sweep across the entire right. world to, without even getting into the questions of repopulating the earth? With this arc. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I, you know, what's weird is, and maybe this shows what a morbid kid I am, but like, I felt like, uh, you know, a lot of other kids or maybe in Sunday school or whatever, they would talk about this. And the focus would be on like, look how cool this is. This guy built this boat and there's all these fun animals on it. Mm-hmm. And then they have a happy ending. And I'm like, what is this den of uh, iniquity that they're talking about? All these like they kept talking about all the sinners that needed to be washed uh-huh. away. And I didn't quite know what they meant. I mean, now, like you look at it, and it's pretty obvious, like they're talking about prostitution and and uh infidelity and all kinds of things. Gambling, I think, is in there, too. Right. Yeah. But uh at the time, I, they just are drawn as like kind of like evil, like scheming people. <laughs> and yeah. and so I was like, how does this how does this work out? This flood that's so huge that it kills everybody on Earth because Earth's a pretty big place. That's the that's the weird like um uh, cognitive dissonance you have. Mm-hmm. You're a child in present day. You know the Earth is a pretty big place, but you're trying to imagine how does this flood work that's able to kill everybody except for Noah and his family and these animals on the boat? Yeah. So we have a pretty uh, thought-provoking myth here and a very pervasive myth. Uh, and we're not going. So this episode is going to going to look at some of these these global flood myths. Yeah. And then we're going to look at the. The actual possible science behind the flood itself. Yeah, we are there's no- a lot of yes. research, lots of research into this. Now, we are not going to get into a lot of the specifics of supposed arc construction. We're not going to get into right. a lot of, uh, <laughs> of uh, you know, creationism. Stuff. They talk and about how the arc was built. Yeah. <laughs> but, it, but, but instead, we're going we're gonna to focus on the myth. We're going to sp- focus on what we really know about massive floods and 
yeah. how some of these floods may have informed, um, you know, this cultural legacy of catastrophic flooding. Yeah, absolutely. There is, I mean, I think it's safe to say almost an entire discipline of geology that's based around looking at not confirming whether flood myths actually happen, but, you know, uh, the history of water impact floods in particular on regions and how you can track those back in it. It's fascinating, especially the core sample stuff that we're going to talk about with the uh, Baltic Sea. Yeah. All right. So let's uh, let's kick things off with just a, a, an overview of the the, the big flood myth in uh, in Western civilization, uh, that of Noah. OK. So basically, this is a staple of Abrahamic religion. So you find this in Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and any various uh, uh, sub-brand that is uh, spun off from those big three. Mm-hmm. So in this uh, story, in this... Aronofskyism. This, yeah, Aronofskyism. <laughs> uh, in this myth, uh, Noah is an antediluvian human, okay? So he's very much a resident of a mythical time. According to the book of Genesis, he's over 500 years old before any of this flood business even gets going. Yeah, I forgot about that he's part. He's 600 when the flood comes down, and he lives to a ripe old age of 950 years old. So, so given the other myths that we're going to talk about today, I'm going to speculate that that has to do with the idea of him being a wise man, right? And so wisdom seemed to have been measured in years lived back then. Well, and it's also just like supposedly well, humans lived longer before that too. the flood. There's this this idea. It's kind of like a superhuman mythical age. And, yeah. You know, think of it as, as kind of like the the elves before humans. Yeah, you know, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a really world. good... And, and elves are supposed to be super wise, yeah. too. There you go. So Noah's doing all right in the eyes of God in this scenario, okay? He, but the rest of the humanity is destroying the earth with their wickedness, so God decides to destroy humans with the earth to, quote, destroy all flesh. Mm. So he plans to flood everything, but he wants to safeguard certain aspects of his creation, so he gives Noah detailed instructions for a massive ark made of gopher wood, which has nothing to do with real with actual gophers, um, <laughs> probably a lost or forgotten tree species or a lamentation uh, process. There's been a lot of back and forth on the map. The ark would be very different if it was just made of gophers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so he makes a covenant. God makes a covenant with Noah. His family, two of every animal, seven of the clean ones, <laughs> food, and they're going to ride out the flood, and then the ark winds up touching down on Mount Ararat at the end of all this, and then Noah and his animals and his family, they disembark to rebuild a ruined world. And then uh, Noah also planted a vine- vineyard and had himself a stiff drink, which I think was well-deserved. Yeah, yeah, he, he worked for it. So I... I don't know about you, but I definitely had this idea in my like maybe teens, early twenties where I was like a great sci-fi movie would be like the Bible is actually a prophecy mm-hmm. and Noah's Ark hasn't happened yet. Oh yeah. And you, so this, like a sci-fi version mm-hmm. of this would be like the floods are coming and you have to build the Ark. And I'm sure there's gotta be a movie out there, right? That's well, I know there's been like lots this. of like space arc uh, scenarios yeah. that have played out. Um, I remember there being a, an episode of the old Avengers TV show with uh, a Noah's Ark plot line, but I don't really? remember the details. You mean like with Steed and Peel? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know that. That's yeah, interesting. It's been a while. I can't remember the details on that one, but it exists. But this, this is definitely something that like we're fascinated with as a culture, whether you're religious or not. This, this idea of this flood myth, the uh, uh, flood coming down and wiping the earth clean and then creating something in its wake. And we see it uh, also in Sumerian myth. And in fact, there's an idea here that this story that I'm about to tell you is actually the origin of the Noah story, that this is 5,000 years old, maybe older than the other flood myths, and it might be where some of them came from. Yeah, this one ties into like our, our earliest written accounts. Yeah, and this guy, uh, who this is primarily about, his, I'm, unless anybody out there speaks ancient Sumerian, I'm going to guess that it's Utnapishtim. Uh, and but it's the Epic of Gilgamesh that this story comes out of, and I'm only familiar with the Epic of Gilgamesh because Gilgamesh is a Marvel Comics character. Oh, really? Yeah, like many Marvel Comics characters, uh, they just seem to have plucked characters out of religion and mythology around the world, like Thor. Uh, and made them into superheroes that exist in present day. Uh, so I remember Gilgamesh from being in the Avengers in the like uh, late 80s or something like that. Um, but he's supposed to be the same Gilgamesh that we're going to talk about here. 
So the Sumerian poem myths that Gilgamesh appeared in date back as early as 2100 BCE. They've been passed down through other cultures. So what we, you know, we might present to you here, you may be familiar with from other cultures. That's just a little bit different. There's so many different iterations of these. This is just the 11th part of the whole like epic of Gilgamesh. Uh, basically goes like this. Gilgamesh was the king of a place called Uruk, and he was two-thirds god, one-third man. Sounds like an awesome superhero origin story yeah, already, right? like he's already even better than half god, half man. Yeah, like he, he had three parents. <laughs> um, and uh, the elders of the city, though, even though he was their king, they didn't think he was wise enough yet to be a good king. Uh, so they sent a, quote, wild man of the steppe named in Kidu to fight him and teach him humility. Uh, brief aside for a second, do you remember when Lost was on TV and there was this whole like uh, side thread about how people thought that it was a mirror story of Enkidu and Gilgamesh. No, I missed that there, read of it. Yeah. yeah, some people out there might be familiar mm-hmm. with this, but there was this whole uh, thing that they thought that like the writers of Lost were somehow uh, incorporating this myth into the show. Huh. Uh, okay. So, anyways. Enkidu and Gilgamesh fight because superheroes, right? Uh, at least back then they were, they were mythic superheroes. They fight to a standstill, but Gilgamesh wins. And he and Enkidu, then they become best friends because they respect each other so much. They're the only ones who can basically like fight each other as well. As oh, they wow. Can. So this is like the, the original two heroes bat- duking it out and yeah. coming to mutual respect. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, and it's kind of like in They Live when Roddy Roddy Piper oh, and Keith yes. David fight. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, they so they. Go on a bunch of adventures together, as you do. And that's, you know, a huge part of the epic of Gilgamesh, the, all those stories. It, in those stories, Enkidu eventually dies. I think it's of a disease that he dies. So Gilgamesh is upset that his friend is dead, and he's, you know, as most people do when they're faced with death, wants to become immortal. <laughs> so he goes in search of immortality, and he goes looking for this guy named Utnapishtim. Now, this Utnapishtim is going to sound familiar to you. He's the only man who survived the great flood that killed everybody before him. He uh, goes through a now. This is Gilgamesh I'm talking about here. Gilgamesh goes through all these trials, wearing like lion skins, to meet this immortal person. And I'm not going to go through all of them here. When he gets there, Utnapishtim basically explains to him, "Look, nothing has permanence." You don't want to be immortal. Uh, but then he, he still tells his story. He's like, okay, here's how I became immortal. The ruler of the gods, who was named Enlil, sent a flood to destroy humanity. But the god Ea instructed Utnapishtim to build an ark and put, quote, the seed of everything in it. Then when the flood came, it was so horrible that the gods themselves were just, like, really upset. It was They were watching just, like, utter violence, and they, they couldn't take it. So Enlil said, okay... How about this uh, as a consolation prize? Anybody who lived through the flood gets to be immortal. I'll give them everlasting life. So this is Utnapishtim and his wife. They're now immortal. Gilgamesh is there hanging out with them now. <laughs> it's like a, like as if there were a class action lawsuit and this was the settlement. Yeah. It's like, all right, we yeah. realize we're not going to admit fault, but we realize that the flood had some disastrous consequences. Survivors get immortality and then we're done with it. Bingo. No countersuits. Yeah. yeah. So, but this isn't the end of the story. Utnapishtim says to Gilgamesh, look, you really want to be immortal that bad? All right, let's start off. You need to not sleep for six days and seven nights. And Gilgamesh immediately falls asleep. (laughs) And he wakes up seven days later. Like, he sleeps for seven days straight. Uh, and, you know, he, there's some variations on what goes on between him and Utnapishtim and, and, and his wife. But basically, Gilgamesh returns back to the city as a wiser man. And he's now wearing an everlasting elder's robe. He's learned his lesson. Now he's ready to be king, right? He's learned that not all things are permanent. He's had all these adventures with his friend and he's learned from the world. But this is thought to be connected to the Noah's Ark myth because they're very similar, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we, I, we don't get the sequel to Noah's Ark like we do here though. The, the, I, I don't remember any stories of like, here's what happened to Noah afterward. Yeah. Well, it, it ends up, yeah, becoming part of the, um, Part of a larger story, right? It becomes, yeah. it becomes uh, because woven it's, it's, into the existing uh, mythos. Yeah, as yeah. kids who sort of carry the torch afterward, right? Mm-hmm. 
But it's interesting to think of this too as uh, as the, the proto flood story because you have to remember this this, this is the earliest account we have, yeah. and it's from uh, a portion of the world where we see civilization really begin to spin and take off, where we see agriculture spinning and taking off. Yeah. So there's this idea, especially in this region. Oh yeah. So there's this idea that this becomes just part of like global cult- cultural DNA. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, like, here's the thing that we're going to find out and our next example will even prove this, that, uh, these myths don't all pop up out of that one Mesopotamian area, right? There's myths from the Pacific Northwest. There's myths from Japan. There's myths from, uh, Norse mythology. And right now we're going to give you one from India. Yes. So this one is, um, the story of Manu and, uh, and, and they, Experts are kind of torn on this. Some think think that this may have arisen independently, or that it might have ties to uh, to other tales, essentially dating back to the uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Okay, but uh, like it might have traveled. Yeah, either it traveled, but also it could have it could have risen up independently because. Yeah. You know, as, as we'll discuss, like flooding is a universal uh, event. Like, right. Like, it's not it like it didn't just happen in that one right. part of it's the world. Right. It's not like it's not like a flood happened and someone said, "Whoa, flooding is possible." Yeah. Uh, here's a great story about it. No. Uh, so this one involves uh, a man by the name of Manu. He's the first human. He's out. It's uh, a good name for yeah, the it's first a, human. Good, good, good name for a first human. He's uh, he's out fishing, and he ends up talking to a fish. This great fish comes to him, speaks to him, and says, "Hey, big flood's coming. You need to build a ship." And he agrees. The waters begin to rise, so he tethers the ship to the great horn of this fish. Oh, cool. Um, so it's like a... Yeah. Kind of rides the fish out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The fish uh, carries him along. fish carries him over the northern mountains and then uh, has him bind the ship to a tree. Okay. And then the waters all abate, and Manu offers uh, an offering of ghee, sour milk, uh, whey, and curds to the water. And okay. a year later, a woman is born. Okay. And she uh, comes to, to Manu and tells him to use her in a sacrifice, and this <laughs> resulted in their offspring. <laughs> wait, wait. So the, is is this a human sacrifice that results in an offspring, or it's a different kind of sacrifice? Um, it's, it's unclear. It's a little unclear. Okay. Um, we, we see I, I, we see this in another myth we're going to discuss too, where yeah. like the the idea of the flood not only as apocalypse but new beginning. Yeah, it's so, definitely a rebirth thing. Yeah, which that that makes sense that they would introduce this sort of mother figure. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's a survival story, but it's also a second creation story. Okay. And uh, this story gets more involved as traditions build up, uh, like everything in in Hinduism. Uh, It leads to the establishment of Vishnu's fish avatar, uh, Matsya. And uh, the flood motif is also important in Tamil literature, involving at least two different flood myths, one of creation, one of survival. uh, And it, uh, you know, continues to spiral out from there. This is another uh, key point here, and this was uh, discussed uh, in The Flood Myth, which is a book by uh, Alan Dundas, that like a lot of these stories, uh, humanity survives the calamity and then almost, almost immediately faces a new threat, too, which right. is something we see in, in Noah and, and beyond. Uh, so, yeah, so now we have the, the Indian, the Hindu uh, interpretation of a, of a great flood. So we've got another version of this all the way on the other side of the world in Norris mythology. Ah. Uh, and uh, again, like, like with all of these, there's various iterations. And again, there are characters here that Marvel Comics has appropriated on their own. Uh, anybody who's read Thor comics or seen Thor movies, uh, cause those are a thing now, mm-hmm. which is, it's weird to me, uh, is familiar with Odin and Thor and the Norse mythology stuff that, that, uh, comes out of that. But this is the Norris myth of the ice giant Ymir. And I think I'm saying that right. That's how I've always said it since I was a kid. Cause Ymir was like, he was like the biggest, baddest monster in the Marvel universe. Other oh, wow. than, well, there's the ice one, Ymir, and then there's Surtur and he's the fire demon. Uh, so there's these two and various versions. And that's actually important. Although I don't know if Surtur actually comes from the myth. He might just be a creation of like, Stanley and Jack Kirby, who knows? Okay. But the Ice Giants, we actually see those in that first Thor. Yeah, yeah. And they are supposedly the children of Ymir. So, 
Um, there, again, there's tons of iterations on this. So if you're like a Norse mythology expert, my apologies, but this is basically like the boiled down summary version. Ymir is this primordial being. This is the most metal story ever, too. I was fixing to say this better be very <laughs> dark and, and, and typically Norse. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if like Amana Martha or Ensafirim or any of those like, uh, sort of like Northern European metal bands have songs about Ymir. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, he's this primordial being that's formed, uh, from poisonous venom that's dropped on ice. Now this is before the world exists, but there are these realms, uh, there's Niflheim and that's like the ice realm. And then there's M- Muspelheim and that's, uh, like a fire realm. Uh, and in between them, they sort of meet like they're, they're ice and, uh, fire. The heat from, from that comes together, makes this venom. It drops down and forms Ymir. And it sort of begins a proto universe similar. If you've seen the Thor movies, then, you know, like their version of it is the nine realms, right? With Asgard and Midgard and, and all the, the I, in fact, I think Niflheim is in there as well. Um, now the gods in this story, including Odin, father of Thor and the, the, you know, the big guy in Norse mythology, subsequently formed aspects of the world from Ymir's body after they killed him. So they had a big battle with him. His blood became the oceans and caused a huge flood. Now before this in this myth, there were no bodies of water. So it's, it, it's, you know, the idea is that Ymir's blood basically forms rivers and lakes and oceans and all of that. Um, and the giants that you were talking about earlier that are in like that first Thor movie, they're supposed to be his children and they like spawned out of his body. Now, uh, there's a, there's a couple other things to this that are just fun that I'll throw in there. One of which is that, uh, sometimes people say, well, if Ymir was just created, like, what did he eat? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, apparently also created around the same time was a cow called Odd Humla. And this is like this giant mystic cow and four rivers of milk ran out of her teats. And that's what fed Ymir. So he, there's, I'm just trying to imagine like this huge ice giant floating in space and you've got this space cow floating above him <laughs> and he's drinking from that. But basically in the death story is basically Odin and two of his brothers just, you know, annihilate him. Uh, and it, it, it ultimately results in what we know as the earth. Uh, not just the blood, but like the blood flowing around his dead body. Like they turned his skull into the sky and they made, uh, stars out of like molten slag and, and, uh, they threw his brains into the sky to make clouds and like parts of earth and hills and things like that. They're all part of his body. So we're all living on his corpse right now in that myth. Um, but the thing about it is, is that, you know, this is yet another flood myth from a whole different time. The, the difference being here is that this one doesn't have, you know, the, the, uh, elder wise man who gets on a boat and saves everything. Although I guess Odin in a way is sort of the wise man, but he's like a warrior wise man. So this is kind of a a flood of death, but also a flood of creation. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I mean, not only did the earth, was the earth created out of him, but then like, if you, you know, can wrap your head around the, the Norse mythology of all these different realms that sort of interact like a Venn diagram, uh, yeah, he like partially came out of those and then like created a whole nother realm where these giant, the ice giants live. I believe it's David Montgomery of the University of Washington who will uh, we'll get into more of his work in the second half of this uh, episode. Yeah. But I believe he pointed out that you see a lot of beneficial flood myths in in African cultures and 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 less in the yes. way of cataclysmic floods, which is interesting because in this we see the the geographic importance of the myth. We see the geography yeah. informing the myth. What does a flood mean in the geography of this particular people? Yeah, absolutely. Uh and that's why, you know, uh, geographic studies and geological studies are super important to sort of, I guess, backtracking and trying to figure out where all of this came from. Cool. Well, I have another one here, and this is from, uh, this is from Chinese mythology. It's the, it has to do with the great flood of Kun Yu, uh, and this plays an important role in, in Chinese mythology, though it's often the, is often the case with uh, Chinese mythology. There's not necessarily a lot of internal consistency here. Uh, and this would have been a generation spanning flood. Okay. So this is how it ends up playing out. There's this big flood and it's not really, it's not 
divine punishment or anything. It's just kind of a, a natural occurrence. Okay. It's not so much something the gods inflict. It just happens. All right. So humans are suffering, though. Humans are displaced. They're trying to figure out how to solve the problem of all this catastrophic flooding. Mm. So you have this uh, culture bearer, this important cultural hero named Goon or Kuhn. Okay. And uh, he ends up taking the divine self-renewing soil from the gods in order to save humans from the flood. Okay. Um, you know, he's going to build like dam works and whatnot. Uh, but he didn't, he didn't wait for permission to actually obtain the divine uh, so soil. It's like a Prometheus kind of thing. Yeah, it's exactly. It's a very much a Prometheus myth. He's okay. punished for stealing the gift. Uh, he, depending on which version you look at, he's yeah. either killed or he's turned into a bear or some sort of a turtle Ooh. creature. There's at any rate, he's taken out of the game for this. Yeah. But the gift is permitted to remain and the, the gods end up ordaining his son, uh, Daryu, to continue his work with the divine soil. Okay. Uh, only he ends up deviating from his father's plans and finishing his father's work. He constructs drainage channels, reconstructs uh, earthen barriers, and in the end, he manages to defeat this the great deluge and become emperor and founds the Shia dynasty. Uh, this wow. This been uh, 2070 to 1600 BCE. So this actually binds into, like, legitimate history that we have records of. That's interesting. Well... Yes and no, yeah. <laughs> because you know when you when you begin going back further and further in Chinese history, yeah. you see the, the you see myth and and actual history, oh, yeah. you know, becoming one, which is I guess pretty much the case with with most old uh, cultures and societies. Certainly in, in Indian uh, history, you go back far enough, you're dealing with wars that may or may not have actually happened, yeah. and then you have to try and separate the the myth from the reality. Well, and then even here, you've got, like, Paul Bunyan and Babe the Blue Ox, stuff like that, <laughs> that, like, supposedly mixed in. I remember learning about that stuff when I was a kid and thinking it was totally real. Well, th- I wonder if there are Norse implications of, yeah, of Babe and the, the Blue maybe Ox. Maybe there is. Yeah. Somebody just wrote into us the other day, by the way, uh, about a mistake they said that we made in an episode. We were talking about Johnny Appleseed, and they said Johnny Appleseed was actually based on a real person. He was, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's come up a couple of of times and I honestly can't remember what we even said about. It. We were talking about legends and myth. We were talking about uh, ways of looking at mythology. Oh, okay, yeah. And we were talking about the difference between myth and legend and folklore. Yeah, and yeah. It, at any rate, if, if there's any confusion on that, yes, Johnny Appleseed was is based on a real person, so it would be more of like legend folklore as opposed to mythology. Sure, sure. Yeah. But it becomes difficult when you start going further and further back in time. Yeah, because there's like this snowball effect, right? Important individuals become wrapped up in our expectations and our ideas and our mythic and magical understanding of the world. Mm-hmm. And if if there's a real person at the heart of that snowball, you kind of lose them after a while. Yeah, there was this uh, study that just came out earlier this week uh, that we read about on Monday morning that was saying, you know, basically that they'd confirmed evidence that our memories are unreliable, but not just our memories, but our memories of people who have passed away, right? So then if you extrapolate that outwards to people who actually existed, but we've never met. It's it gets further and further unreliable the 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 longer in time we get away from them, right? So naturally we're going to turn them into mythological figures. Exactly. Now these uh, accounts that we've given you, this is just a sampling of global flood myths. Yeah, there are all kinds as well that we're not going to dive deep into, but I'll just give you a couple here. There's flood stories from Fiji and Tahiti that say that giant waves struck the islands there without any warning. Mm-hmm. Uh, in central Chile, there's a story of two giant serpents that fought each other by trying to lift the sea up to its highest point, and this resulted in earthquakes and flooding. Uh, Tibetans of the Sapango, or maybe it's Sangpo Valley, they have a flood myth that describes basically a giant glacial dam that breaks. Uh, and then in the Pacific Northwest here uh, in in uh, North America, native tribes tell a story that's similar about Thunderbird and Whale. And here's where this gets interesting and sort of is a nice segue for us into the science part that we're going to talk about here. Japanese temples actually have records of a major earthquake that happened in 1700 and sent waves all the way to Japan. Now, this earthquake presumably happened in the Pacific Northwest somewhere, maybe in the ocean just off of it. This could have been the event that created the myth of Thunderbird and Whale and caused Native Americans that were living on the western coast to flee and move further inland. Hmm. So that's really like 
the beginning of what I guess we're going to refer to today as like geo mythology, which is um, taking a look at the mythology and then taking a look at the records or or using science to look at the actual land masses and figure out what happened here thousands of years ago. Yeah, and it also brings us back again to the the notion that a flood myth is going to be informed by what flooding looks like to those people and to that region. Yeah. So here we've looked at a few examples that are coastal and uh, Pacific, and those are, of course, going to be informed by earthquakes and tsunamis sure, and that yeah. sort of occurrence, as opposed to river lands, which are going to be formed uh, uh, out of uh, you know the experiences with rising uh, water levels in the rivers. Yeah, I'm th- like... F- I didn't think about this until now, but like imagine if um, Hurricane Katrina happened and we didn't have like present day technology and mm-hmm. information culture. Right. Like there would have certainly been crazy stories that spawned out of an event that was as devastating as that. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what is a hurricane uh, a hurricane making landfall other than a cataclysmic flood of, mm-hmm. you know, of, of epic proportions? That's the kind of thing that that will spiral out myths. Yeah. And if you. you you know, wow, this is dawning on me as well. Even at the time, do you remember that there were some people who were saying like, oh, well, New Orleans uh, is being punished oh, because yeah. it's a city of sin. And of course this happened there because mm-hmm. they're getting what they deserved, which is like a horrible thing to say. But like even in present day, people are cooking up stories like that uh, about these huge natural disasters. Well, from a, you know, from a religious framework, I guess sometimes something an idea like that as awful as it is yeah. is easier to digest than the than the other reasons right right you get down to why do horrible things happen and, on a particular day and that it's watch. totally out of our control and yeah. we're nothing but gnats compared to natural disasters <laughs> so it, it took uh, quite a while for modern scientific understanding of earth's geological and biological history to fully disengage from Western Christian religious traditions uh, to fully remove the sacred time frame from the profane time frame. Uh, so we see the earliest approaches to understanding Earth's history. We see those shackled to this idea of an antediluvian world, a pre-flood world uh, within the periods of a, of a, of a pre-Adamic uh, and Adamic time. So it's all about like, you know, Eden and Adam and the, yeah. the great flood, uh, Noah surviving it. Like that is just interwoven uh, with our early scientific understanding of the world. And there's this kind of fascinating weave of religion and science that happens in the Roman Catholic Church, but in, in the other clergy as well, uh, but primarily through a guy named Nicholas Steno. And he's a 17th century Roman Catholic priest who is one of the earliest known geologists. He actually achieved three of the four steps to being declared a saint. So this huh. guy is very highly regarded within the Catholic Church. Steno was one of the first people to show that rocks tell their own stories. And sometimes these stories either guide religious doctrine or they can refute it, right? And in this instance, he was referring to the flood myth, right? And so by the time of Darwin, uh, the clergy basically came to the understanding with the field of geology and abandoned the idea that a literal global flood had happened. Now, we were just talking to our co-host Joe McCormick about this before we came in. Now, Joe said that there are like some, I guess, creationist geologists who have said, you know, well, you know, we, we disregard that. We do think that there was a global flood and you can see its markers here, here, here and here. And like one of the examples he gave us was the Grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, the discipline of geology and even many clergy members disregard that and think of it as more of a metaphor or as being something that was localized, right? Yeah. That uh, science, with what we have with science today, it seems like it would be impossible for the world to actually have experienced a global flood. Exactly. Yeah, there are a number of reasons why this is is just not the case. So for for starters... There is no global culture in early human history. So there's no, there's no, there's no internet in ancient Babylonian right. times. So if there was a global flood, uh, we'd have no way of reporting it, you know? Uh, we would have to depend on a divine being, I guess, to report it to us. That would be the loophole to explain it. Mm-hmm. Also, um, if you, of course, this is a big one here. There's just not enough water 
in the Earth's system to account for water levels to rise above the highest mountain. Um, uniformly rising levels would not allow the water to have the erosive uh, capabilities that are often attributed to a global flood, uh, particularly in, you know, in the Abrahamic tradition. Mm-hmm. And some rock formations, millions of years old, they, they show no evidence of large-scale water erosion. The rocks are not telling us that this is taking place. And then, of course, there are a number of other cultural things to to think back on here. Again, coming back to the idea that there's no global culture in, in early human history. You look back yeah. to the earliest human empires, and they're all very regional. The Akkadian Empire from uh, 2350 to 2150 BCE in modern Iraq, uh, and and following that, the, the Hittite Empire, uh, the Assyrians, they're all fairly localized. Yeah, but to them, that was the world. The right. world was what they knew. Uh, so it would make sense that, of course, this would be a world myth, even though they're unaware that Japan exists, right? right? And then the other big one, of course, is that human societies, early human cultures, they they built up around waterways. And mm-hmm. waterways flood, rivers flood, uh, ponds flood, lakes flood. Uh, the, the waves come crashing in. There are tsunamis. There are hurricanes. So f- rising water levels would be a pretty much a universal experience of, of any early human. So everyone would have the chance to experience this and form their own myths about it, or certainly to uh, intercept another myth and make it their own. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. As we have seen just today with the Gilgamesh epic sort of morphing into the Noah's Ark story that we know today. Yeah. Uh, and this is what uh this there's this term i use, i threw it out earlier but i really like it it, it came up in the research it's called geo mythology and it mm-hmm. was coined by a woman named dorothy vitaliano in the 1960s and she was essentially trying to describe oral storytelling that explains landforms that have been created by earthquakes fires floods volcanoes diverting waterways or even like the sudden emergence or disappearance of islands right these huge natural events there is some evidence that these are grounded in real events, but they're connected to myth as well. So geomythology. In the case of the Great Flood myth, though, as we're saying now, most people think that it differs from region to region. Yeah, so so the, the, the immediate take-home here is that while nobody is seriously considering the idea of a global catastrophic flood, there's plenty of really cool science and really cool research um, that that applies to regional floods in history. Yeah. Uh, And so this leads us to this book called The Rocks Don't Lie uh, by geologist David Montgomery. And he wrote a really uh, long, interesting piece in Nautilus magazine Mm -hmm. that we read for this episode that dives pretty deep into uh, looking at, in in particular, he was, what was the part of the world that he was in that he was describing? I believe Tibet. He was looking okay. at uh, at uh, at some Tibetan floodplains, and he was there. But then he was extrapolating it outward to all these other regions that had uh, flood myths. And he's sort of our go-to on this. Yeah, he has a great quote uh, uh, from the from that book. He said, "If your world is small enough." All floods are global. I, I keep coming yeah, back to that I one like again that and one. again. Uh, there's also another quote I want to read real quick from uh, uh, a man by the name of uh, Irving Finkel, a curator at the British Museum and author of the book The Ark Before Noah, decoding the story of the flood, another very interesting author that's dealing seriously with the subject matter. He says, quote, There must have been a heritage memory of the destructive power of flood water based on various terrible floods, and the people who survived would have been people in boats. You can imagine someone sunbathing in a New, half asleep and waking up however long later and they're in the middle of the Persian Gulf and that's the beginning of the flood story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking of there's this, there's an episode of uh, that Andy Daly show review with Forrest McNeil. Have you ever seen that? Mm, I don't think I've seen I, it. It's really funny but that, that happens in it. He goes to sleep in a canoe and wakes up and he's actually in the um, what's the, the great Pacific garbage uh, patch? Oh. He wakes up there. Uh, anyways, so, yeah, David Montgomery really kind of pulls it all together. But there's been a lot of geologists who've looked at this over the years, right? So, yeah, David Montgomery is really like the guy who's been pulling a lot of this together. And in particular, in 2002, he did this analysis of the Sepango, again, Sangpo River in the Tibetan Plateau. Uh, and he found evidence 
in sediment layers that there was a great valley that had formed in this, you know, uh, or there was a lake that had formed in this valley centuries ago. Not once, but number of times, right? Yeah, yeah, it had apparently flooded uh, several t- several times. Uh, yeah, downstream he found evidence uh, that a glacier on several different occasions advanced far enough to block the river, creating a huge lake. But since ice makes uh, an unstable dam, over time the ice thins, and then it finally gives way and it unleashes this tremendous torrent of water that just surges down uh, to the deepest gorge. Now, in Montgomery's book, The Rocks Don't Lie, he makes arguments that there's two centuries of evidence that the global flood did not happen. Uh, first, as we said, there's not enough water on Earth to account for water levels that could even rise above our highest mountains. And secondly, any uniformly rising level would have left erosive evidence. Rock formations that are millions of years old, they don't show large scale Water erosion, so it's more likely that these were regional. So, his, his that's sort of his general thesis that he keeps coming back to over and over again. So Montgomery has actually written about that Pacific Northwest region as well that I was talking about earlier. But this is different from the Thunderbird whale myth that I was talking about. This is from 10,000 years ago, probably, again, caused by melting glaciers. There's now evidence from geological research that show displaced boulders and deep scores in the earth and deep ripple marks on the prairies, all of which are signs of what we refer to today as the Masula flood. Now, these same floods likely eroded away land that also created the English Channel. All the way on the other side, you know, a continent away, uh, they made England into an island. The myth connected to this, though, is different. Uh, The Ojibwa Indians, they have a legend that a great snow fell down and a bag containing the sun's heat was breached when a mouse nibbled into it. The warmth from the bag spilled over, melted all the snow and produced the flood. And everyone drowned except for one old man who was drifting around in a canoe rescuing animals. Interesting. Again, Mm -hmm. we see that a particular geography of a region, the particular weather of a region playing into their own particular flood myth. Yeah, I would imagine uh, if this was uh, Carl Jung was in the room with us, he'd be screaming about collective unconscious right now. Indeed. So, all right, we've got two, maybe three pretty big geological discipline studies that have come out in the last, I'd say, 30 years Mm -hmm. uh, that have really gone deep in, in literally by, by say gone deep, they've literally drilled deep into the earth to find out what's going on with these flood myths. Uh, and so the first of these are, uh, William Ryan and Walter Pittman. That's right. These, uh, these are geologists from Columbia University. And in the 1990s, they proposed that a great flood in the Middle East resulted from rising water levels at the end of the last ice age that would have been about 7,000 years ago. At that time, the Black Sea was a freshwater lake and the lands around it were farmlands. When the European glaciers melted, the Mediterranean Sea overflowed with a force of Two, force 200 times greater than that of Niagara Falls, Whew. converting the Black Sea from a fresh to saltwater uh, body and flooding the entire area. So the way these guys came to this conclusion was they analyzed sediment cores from the bed of the Black Sea, making them think that the sea used to be a freshwater lake. The glacial ice melted at our poles, raising the world's sea levels, and this caused the huge inflow. Now, this is where the er world's earliest farming communities lived, as Robert just mentioned. So maybe they're the ones who brought this story to Mesopotamia. It then turns into the Gilgamesh legend, which then turns into the Noah legend, which maybe then travels to India. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, this would have rapidly inundated a a broad plain occupied by some of the world's earliest farming communities. They're traumatized by the flood. Uh, They bring these tales with them to new lands and new cultures. So perhaps the tale of the Great Flood was essentially hard-coded into the secret of agriculture. You get one, you get the other. Okay, so other researchers have since looked at sediment cores from the delta of the Danube River, which empties into the Black Sea. Yeah, indeed. One of these studies was actually uh, National Geographic Society explorer Robert Ballard. And he was inspired by Ryan and Pippin's hypothesis. And he's discovered supporting physical evidence, including a, an underwater river valley and ancient shorelines, as well as Stone Age structures and tools beneath the Black Sea. 
His team was also uh, able to unearth fossils that show uh, now extinct freshwater species dating back some uh, 74,060 uh, to 15,500 years. Wow. Uh, I, I'm wondering now, like looking looking at this, because it seems like he's connected maybe to the Laurentide Ice Sheet hypothesis. Maybe he yeah. was part of that team in 2007 as well. Then we've got Bruce Massey, I think is how you say his last mm-hmm. name. Uh, and he has a comet theory. Yes. Um, now, he's an environmental archaeologist at the Los Alamos National Laboratory, and he has his own theory. He thinks that more comets and meteors have struck Earth than we're aware of, which sounds reasonable, uh, and that the great flood stories all sprung out of a comet hitting the planet 5,000 years ago. This is rather perfect, right? Because especially when you start looking at these models where the flooding is a divine action. Yeah. So here we see a, a cosmic body actually plummeting to the earth and causing the flooding. It could. It could be. Although I, I wonder if guys like Montgomery would argue with him and say, well, that's sort of going back to a more global catastrophe rather than a regional one. Mm-hmm. But basically his argument is that there was a three mile or 4.8 kilometer wide comet that crashed into the ocean just off of the coast of what we now call Madagascar. And this caused violent, huge tsunamis and hurricanes that just basically wrecked the whole planet uh, because the superheated water vapor from the comet goes up into the air along with aerosol particles. They're shot up. They go into the jet streams and they just, you know, wreak havoc on uh, the weather patterns. Now, he says he's found evidence for this theory in ancient petroglyphs, drawings and historical records. But then in 2004, he gets really excited because he thinks he's found physical evidence. He says a tsunami that's 600 feet tall would, of course, leave evidence on our geology. Well, he thinks that he found evidence or another team found evidence and, and he, uh, you know, glommed onto this that in Africa and Asia, there are what we call chevrons. Now you think of chevron like the gas station. It's mm-hmm. kind of like their symbol. They're these wedge shaped configurations that come up out of the sand. Now, the Holocene Impact Working Group found a lot of these in that area with satellite imagery. And he's connected onto that and said, well, the, this is evidence of this comet theory that I have. The next step for them is basically to go into these chevrons and carbon date all the fossils that are within them to determine if they were formed 5,000 years ago, right around the time he's pitching that this comet landed. Hmm. Well, However it ends up playing out, I think it's a, a fascinating theory. Yeah, it is. It's interesting. It, it, um, I don't know. I guess like in the face of all these other geologists that we've, we've read today that say, well, it's probably localized because of this, yeah. this, and this, then to have a guy come along and say like, actually, no, there was a super big comet, man. Like it sounds cool. It sounds mm-hmm. like an epic like movie, but I don't know. It sounds a little too epic. That's the thing, right? Yeah. It sounds like an, uh, it, and, and I don't, I'm not saying this is a criticism of his research. No, I mean, but it sounds like an epic idea to support a, a large scale flooding that has already been dismissed. Yeah. And, and to his credit, I don't want to make him sound like a crackpot or anything, but mm-hmm. to his credit, he's actually coming up with evidence. He's yeah. looking for scientific evidence as well as cultural evidence. So I think that's important. So, wow. So we've got all these myths and then we've just looked through all of these geologists and the science that they're working on. They're still drilling, pulling sediment cores, analyzing what's in them, trying to figure out what actually happened with water and our land masses and the history of the planet. What if we've got another flood coming? What if my prediction from earlier, what if <laughs> Noah's, Noah's Ark is actually like a, a prophecy? Well, uh, you depending on where you live in the world, uh, that certainly could play out. Yeah. Uh, in 2014, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released its fifth assessment report, predicting that the oceans would rise by more than three feet by the year 2100. Okay. That's enough to swamp many of these cities along the U.S. East Coast, for example. Mm-hmm. And there, there are even more extreme estimates uh, out there, uh, certainly that have been made um, over the years, including a complete meltdown of the Greenland ice sheet, and that would push sea levels to rise 23 feet or 7 meters, and that's wow. enough to actually submerge London. Wow. Okay. So, yeah, I'm thinking about, like, the end of uh, Spielberg and Kubrick's AI. Yes. Where, the like, all the cities, cities are underwater. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ugh. 
Yeah, that would be unpleasant. Yeah, I mean, based on most of the, the predictions we see out there, rising water levels and the inevitable flooding of coastal regions, um, that can be mitigated. Yeah. Uh, you know, if we get our craft together in time. Well, I love coastal cities. I grew up in, around a coastal, coastal city. I'd love to live near one again. Right now, we live four hours away from the coast. So mm-hmm. I would imagine Atlanta's probably, maybe Atlanta will become beachfront property, but, uh, yeah, I, I certainly hope that, you know, our coastal cities don't get totally wiped out. But it, it does come back to just why these myths were so per- pervasive, oh, right? Yeah. Because humans yeah. have always lived in coastal regions. Humans have always lived along rivers. They've made their life along rivers. Yeah. We've we've this lived in plenty this, of resources to be had. Yeah, we've lived in this tenuous balance yeah. with the water. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, in some of these myths, the the water and flooding itself kind of takes on a divine um, energy. It, it it's personified even in the the idea of river and flood gods. Yeah, yeah. And that makes sense that this this wrathful entity that we depend on. Uh, it, is also a great danger, and we see that no matter uh, you know which age we live in. Well, best case scenario, it ends up like Waterworld, right? And uh, <laughs> we're Kevin Costner swimming around and riding on our catamaran. I can't believe I didn't think about Waterworld. Yeah. Is there any land in Waterworld? There is. I, well, spoilers for Waterworld <laughs> from the end, but that's the whole like uh, MacGuffin of the movie is that they're searching for the last bit of land that okay. supposedly exists, and they find huh. like a... I mean, I think it's an island at the end, but yeah, like the little kid has like the tattoo of the map on his back that shows him how to get to the, uh, I barely remember that movie, but yeah, the whole mission is for them to figure out if this myth is true. And And do they invoke Noah and the great flood at all? I don't think they ever mention Noah now that I think about it. Hmm. Although, like I said, it's been a long time. I mean, I just remember Dennis Hopper on the like (laughs) oil ship commanding a a gang of like Mad Max-esque pirates. Um... Yeah, that's a weird movie. A lot of people bash that movie because of how expensive it was, and it was kind of a flop. But I loved it when it came out. Yeah, I don't now, know now I want to see it. I've never seen it. Oh, uh, really? In large part oh, yeah? because I remember when it came out, the the media, such as it was yeah. at the time, just completely said, "Oh, it's a, it's a disaster. It's a catastrophe. Uh, don't see it." And yeah. now it sounds rather attractive. It's not the worst movie in the world. You you could do far worse things with two hours of your time. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, on that note, we're going to go ahead and um, head for land on this one. We're going to go ahead and uh, and cling to the mountainside and let the the, the floodwaters of knowledge recede. Uh, but uh, hopefully, we were able to to provide you know. In a sense, you got, you got to get your feet wet yeah. in uh, in global flood myths, in the underlying science of large scale regional flooding in our past. And, uh, you know, who knows? Uh, maybe we'll discuss uh, some of the fringier stuff in the future. Yeah, that would be interesting. And if, uh, you know, I'd love to hear from people out in the audience who maybe you are, um, you know, aware of some kind of cultural myth that we missed that's, mm-hmm. that's really interesting related to floods. Uh, or you live in an area that's been experiencing a lot of flooding, uh, and you've got something to say about that connected to this. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, there's so many ways to get in touch with us. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Tumblr. We're on Instagram. We post all of our episodes on those platforms. We are below the mind or some iteration thereof on there. It's pretty easy to find. Uh, you look for beautiful pictures of me, Robert, and Joe McCormick. And the other place where you can certainly find information on how to contact us is our landing page, our mothership, stufftoblowyourmind.com. And if you want to get in touch with us the old-fashioned way, just shoot us an email at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. I'm <laughs> sorry.